you'll open your Bibles to Acts 21. We'll be in Acts 21 this morning. I think it's 790-something in the Bibles and the pews, or the seats. As you're turning there, I want you to think about uh, America, the American way, especially with regards to rights, individual rights and freedoms. That's, uh, I consider myself a patriot. I, I love this country. Um, and I think rights and freedoms is really at the center of, of American thought. Even to the least patriotic people in our country, they depend on rights and freedoms to express their disposition. And we have a strong sense of individual, pers- in a strong individual perspective on rights and freedoms. Uh, I think in America, just American thought starts with the individual and heads to the collective. You know, from many, one expresses that idea. Uh, States comprising a union, these ideas. We start with the parts. Uh, We focus on the parts, the rights and the freedoms of the parts, and then all these parts come together. So it's so ingrained as rights and freedoms that in the Declaration of Independence, people who don't even know much about it know that we have certain inalienable rights endowed by our Creator, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In our Constitution, it was amended to have the Bill of Rights We've, we've fought wars internally uh, over rights that were not appropriately extended. We have the civil rights movement. In fact, even in rhetoric, if you want your argument to float, make it a conversation about rights and you'll get attention. That's how even in modern our modern present era, something is tried to push through is... This is an issue of rights or issue of equality because that that catches the ear of Americans. How free we are. In uh, the gospel, in, in the scriptures, Paul speaks to the church in very similar terms. He speaks to the church churches in Galatia. He says this in Galatians 5.1, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. You're free. Because up to that point, the religion that, the best religion on the market, the message of Judaism had been, this is the way it had been carried, was if you can do these things, and if you can do these things, and this and that, and if you're observant and can follow this custom and observe this law, not simply recognize that the law is good and true, but if you can actually do it, and if you conscribe yourself to this certain way, then you can be a citizen of the people of God. It would be tedious if our American citizenship had to be painstakingly renewed through careful observance. We'd have to do things just right to hold on to it. And when Paul brings the gospel of Jesus Christ in, he exposes, he says, listen, we could never have followed that body of law in the first place, nor could the customs 
do, any, do anything materially towards advancing our hope in Christ. In fact, all we have is Christ. That's all we have, and we hope on that, and from that bursts our freedom. That's, that's the argument. The whole book of Galatians is that, is this idea that we are only free because of what Jesus has done in our faith in him. That alone gives us our freedom. And it's out of that freedom that we respond with righteousness. And so to be an American Christian, I think we understand our freedoms in Christ pretty well. I think that probably comes more natural to us than to other people's. Uh, we see it in the churches, the, uh, the history in America of, of so in the, you know, the Reformation where the Protestant church broke away from the Catholic church. It's like an American hobby to do that again and again and again. Why? Because we have rights as members of the church. It will be this way. This is how I want church. So it's kind of an American hobby to create new versions of church that is in us, in our congregational nature. As uh, This is a congregational church. It has about it. Uh, I think oftentimes there's a massive bleed over to democratic, which is American. We're congregational, which is biblical, we're democratic because we're American. But that, that, that bleed over has so much to do with our, the way we see the freedom in the gospel and our freedom as Christians and our individual perspective that Jesus Christ came to save me. I think about that. I, I, I have to remind myself, Jesus Christ came to save us. And then I have to remind myself, Jesus Christ came to save them. But, oh, I start with me so easily. This morning, as we're, we're in Acts, Paul is going to be encountered uh, by the church asking him to bend, to submit, to be maybe overly sensitive in an area because of someone else. And I just want you, to, I want you to see, I want you to see and allow it to reflect on you how willingly Paul takes on the weaknesses of another part of the church for peace. Just, I want you to watch that. And then we'll, we'll talk about the role of that in our faith and, and the nature of our, of our freedom. What, what is our freedom for? That, that is something we need to ask about. Okay, so on the way there, and I'm going to read uh, from 17 to 36, but the focus of the the morning will be 17 to 26. So after 26, I still want you to listen, but there will be no test. Uh, I just want you to see how the day works out. Actually, the day works out very poorly, very poorly for Paul. And, And that's one of the reasons I thought maybe I'll just end on 26. I didn't think that. I just, because the teaching... I want to focus on ends on 26. But then I got to thinking, well, people might read it and go, well, he did everything right and it went really bad for him. Well, what does that mean? So I said, well, I'm going to read it so that we all have to deal with it because we can do everything right and things will go really bad for us, right? How things go is not a test on how we did. Otherwise, Christ would not have been on the tree, right? You can't do that, Jesus. So our victory comes through his resurrection, not through our success. So... We'll read, we'll read that in the, in the, with the right mindset. 
Okay, verse 17. This is Paul arriving in Jerusalem. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed... We have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went to the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed... The Jews of Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. I'll stop there. I'm going to talk a little bit through the rest of this since we won't come back. Notice it's, it's, it's not the Christian Jews in Jerusalem, nor is it even the Jews in Jerusalem. It's the Jews who had been living up in Asia, Asia Minor, that's Turkey. Who It's the Jews who, this is Pentecost, so they've returned from Asia Minor. But they know Paul from up there. And they know what he said. And they've, for years now, they have not liked this guy. And so they're out of town Hebrews who've come to Jerusalem and they see kind of the arch enemy, the guy who either stole their congregants or preached Jesus, right? These are not Christ confessing Jews that see him. And they, they're the ones who stir the whole crowd up. On the very last day, when, when Paul is almost in the clear. They stir the crowd up. They lay hands on him in verse 28, crying out, Men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. There was a rule there was a sign on the door of the temple. It, it pretty much said, if you're not a Jew and you're found in here, it's punishable by death. We actually have excavated two of these signs from Herod's temple. Uh, and they were allowed to... In other words, they are, being acu- they are accusing Paul have do, of having done something for which the penalty is death. And the Roman government, excuse me, the Roman government made this exception. They did allow the Hebrews to put people to death for this offense. So that's, it's a big deal, right? 
They saw Trophimus in town. They recognized Trophimus as a Greek because they're he, Jews from Ephesus. They see him, and they just assumed if Paul was in town, he was trampling his buddy Trophimus through the temple. Didn't happen. It was what they saw, or it was what they assumed. Well, when the rest of the people hear that, look at verse 30. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound in two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of people following, followed, crying out, away with him. Okay. If you return to verse 17, you'll see that Paul comes to Jerusalem. And he comes and visits before James and the elders of Jerusalem. Which, since elders has been a topic lately, I want you to point, this is the church of Jerusalem with the elders present. Now James, that's represented here, This James is not the Apostle James, as in Peter, James, and John. He's James, the brother of Jesus. And this James, we typically think of as the 12 apostles, and then there's Paul, and he's an apostle, but he's not the 12. Well, James, the brother of Jesus, is also of apostolic rank. He's highly regarded among the church and among the apostles. In fact, when there was a Jerusalem council in the 15th chapter of Acts to figure out what do we do about the Gentiles, the man who stood up among the apostles and made the case for the Gentiles was James, the brother of Jesus, which was very important because he is, just like Paul is an apostle to the Gentiles, James, the brother of Jesus, is an apostle to the Jews. So for him, in that, in that important moment, for him, the apostle to the Jews, to stand up and say, the Gentiles, we believe through the Spirit that the Gentiles are fully welcomed into the fold of God with no additional conscription of rules. For, them, for him to do that was, was a big, big deal. When Paul writes in Galatians, he mentions three people. He mentions Cephas, who's Peter, John and James, who he says, who reportedly are the pillars of the church. That James is James, the brother of Jesus, this James. Just to give you a sense on how significant he is. And he is called to the Jews. In fact, he will never leave Jerusalem. He will be martyred, killed by the priests in Jerusalem uh, in just a few years. So Paul and his companions come to Jerusalem and they come before James, the apostle to the Jews, you might think of him that way. They come before James and Paul begins to relate, it says step by step, relate one by one all that's happened. 
All the things that he's done in his ministry, all the ways that he's reached the Gentiles. So Paul gives account of his ministry to the Gentiles. Now you can imagine what he said. The different towns he'd been to, his, the, diff, the, the typical pattern of ministry, that he'd go to the synagogues and then he'd be there as long as he could and would be received by few but cast out by many. And so then he'd go and give the word to the city and then others would come. I mean, the classic pattern that Paul always did, he told him one by one, he gave all the details of this ministry. And it's very important in verse 20 to see that when they heard it, they glorified God. So I think this is important because of what's about to be asked of Paul. James and the elders of the church did not tweak Paul. They didn't adjust Paul. They, it was not an inquisition. They didn't doubt him. They weren't frustrated. They didn't grumble. You know, all the times in Scripture where people get together and there's grumbling, there's no grumbling here. There's the glorification. They glorified the Lord based upon what had happened through the ministry of Paul among the Gentiles. In other words, there's nothing wrong in their mind with what Paul had done. But then they add this. It's the second half of verse 20. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. Now, I don't have, it's not in my heart to give it a certain tone. It's as though Paul, in sharing his message, said, And in doing so, many thousands of Gentiles have come to know the Lord. Many thousands have come to know the Lord Jesus as their Lord and Savior and have turned and believed and repented and followed. And after hearing it, they gave praise. And then the elders turned to him and said, well, in this town, there are many thousands of Christians who are following the Lord but are remaining Jewish and remain zealous in their faith. Can you imagine how different these crowds must appear? They worship the same Christ, but... The people, the ministry that Paul has been is to people who have no Jewish background at all, in, in large part. And over here you have James who's, who's ministering among people who have come to Jesus and then they've looked back on their Jewish life and all the rituals and customs. And rather than saying, yeah, it was nice while we had it. Eh, it was pretty good. They don't do that. They hold on to it and worship Christ through it. It's, it's, strange, it's strange to try to imagine exactly how that would look. How would, it, how would it be to go to the temple of God, the temple? You're a Christian. You believe that Jesus is the temple, but there is this temple. And you go there, they were, wor- they were living in that framework where they had still held on to the customs. And among them, there was arising a rumor. And this is the rumor. They've heard about you. This is verse 21. They've heard about you, Paul. They've been told that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. That's the rumor. Now, is there any truth to the rumor? It is true that Paul goes among the Gentiles saying to the Gentiles, do not be circumcised, nor are you bound to the customs of the Jews. 
That is true. Among the Gentiles, Paul would say that. He would more than say it. He would yell it. He would regularly preach it. It was an emphatic doctrine of Paul to say to the Gentile community that the Jewish faith is not a prerequisite for salvation in Jesus. In fact, this had been the major battle of his ministry is that he would go into a new town. He would preach the gospel of salvation by faith through Jesus Christ. We repent and turn to Jesus and he saves us. And the people in the town would receive him. He would leave the town and behind him would come Jews who would say, and you need to be circumcised. They would say, Jesus is good, but you need to observe special days. They'd say, we think that Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected. However, you should eat a certain meal. They would follow up. They would follow behind the ministry of Paul, preaching the gospel, saying, we're saved by Jesus. And they would add to the gospel a list of customs. They would say, actually, no, the Jewish customs are still in effect. So it's Jesus plus the customs and rules of Judaism. To which Paul would respond with, that is utter heresy. That is absolute heresy, and that is no faith at all. In fact, he says at one point in Galatians, he says to the church, if you get circumcised, you have forsaken the grace of Jesus Christ. Don't do it. The famous words are, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? who has come to you with this other message. So among the Gentiles, Paul certainly would say the Jewish customs have no role. But the rumor is he's been doing it among Jews, which we have no evidence that he ever did that among Jews. Nor do they think it's true. They look in verse 22. They say, what then is to be done? They'll, they'll certainly hear you're coming, Here's how we can deal with this. In other words, we know it's a rumor. Let's just nip this rumor in the bud. And the way they're going to nip the rumor in the bud, they're going to say, Paul, what we want you to do is be a good Jew in a very public way. Show your sensitivity to the Christians in Jerusalem by bending over backwards for us and and participating in a Jewish purification rite, this rite of a Nazarite, the vow of a Nazarite, participate in that, go with them, pay their fee, uh, be purified with them, spend time in the temple, do all of that with them. And then the fellow believers in this church will look over and say, wow, Paul is a very observant Jew, very observant. The rumors must be false. And he does it. It says 26, then Paul took them in and the next day he purified himself along with them and went to the temple, giving notice. And when the days of purification would be fulfilled, an offering presented for each one of them. So one might say, uh, is, is, is Paul being a hypocrite? That might be the, um, like a more negative way of looking at this. Someone might say, well, what exact, where's the consistency? Because certainly Paul does not believe that the temple will bring him purity. Purity comes from Christ. I mean, I, I amuse in my mind, I try to wonder what Paul must be thinking to even go to the temple 
in light of what he knows about the Lord. But he, he does it. And one might say, well, he, this is two-faced, or he's speaking out of both sides of his mouth, you know, out in, ta- out in, in Asia Minor, in Turkey, and in Greece, and in Macedonia. He's saying, listen, the, the, the things of the law no longer are effectual for us. They never were effectual for us. They just point us to Christ. He's been saying that on ministry, but he comes back here and he goes and does it. What does that mean? And so, so this is a working definition of, of hypocrisy because I don't think that what Paul is doing is hypocritical. But this is, this is the difference. A hypocrite is someone who will say and do anything so as to preserve his own position. Right? We, if we think of a, uh, a politician who is a hypocrite, we'll think of someone who will say or do anything to keep office. He's worried about his own standing. It's for his own, an own sense of gain. Right? A friend will be hypocritical. You know, oh, I don't like her either. Oh, I don't like her either. We'll kinda, they'll, they'll do that. Why? So that they can, be, they can remain accepted by everybody. That's not what Paul's doing here. Paul is bending over backwards so that his ministry is not in the way of the church. What Paul's doing, Paul sees, he sees that for whatever reason, for whatever concern there is, that him being in town runs the risk of becoming an, os- an obstacle to the church and to the believers, and that, that he is presenting this, this fa- false obstacle between his ministry and what the church is doing. And in that sense, he's not being hypocritical. He's, he's bending over backwards. He's, the words in the book of Romans would be, he's suffering the weaker brother. He's bearing up the weaknesses of someone else. He's saying, what do I need to do just to stay out of the way? In 1 Corinthians, he says this in the ninth chapter, to the Jew I became a Jew so that I might reach Jews. To the Gentiles I became a Gentile so that I might reach Gentiles. I become all things to all people so that I might reach some. You see, with Paul, this idea of freedom, you're free, we're free in Christ. This idea of freedom was not something that he kind of digs his heels on and says, what could he have said here at this moment? James and the elders of the church could say, I'll tell you what, Paul, we know it's not true, but there's a rumor going around about about you and things you've been saying. We know it's not true, but it's traveling. Paul could have said, well, tough. Tough noogies. I'm not doing anything about it. It's their weakness. And this is, this is language that exists in, in all of the communities of God around the world where we observe a weakness over there. And part of our tendency is to go, grow up. Get over it. That's what Paul could have said. You know, p- there's people in the church who don't understand. He could say, well, James, make them understand. I brought you a gift. I came here to bring a gift. And I'm free. I owe nothing to no man. You see, he could have done that, but he didn't. In his own freedom, he freely chose to bend over backwards and say, what is it I need to do? And I don't think he did it in a sarcastic way. I don't think he did it in a a bitter way. I don't think he said, fine, I'll go to your temple. 
and do whatever you want me to do. I don't think that. I think he obediently submitted himself and said, listen, if anything that I've done or if there's anything that may have gotten in the way, what can I do to make this, make this right, to, to clear the air so that people can, can come to know the Lord, so that I'm not an unnecessary obstacle to the gospel? I think in in our understanding of freedom, our, our very good and American understanding of freedom, I think we have a strong embrace of what freedoms are and what liberties are. But I think one thing that is, that is weak about our culture is it is not very aware or thoughtful about the purpose of our freedom. It's just ours. I mean, we, it's very easy. You can, you can turn on any channel for the right or the left or the center and have people screaming about freedom that they're warranted to have, but not humbly talking about the purpose of the freedom that we've been given or that has been preserved for us. And that attitude very easily lives in the church. Because our faith starts with us individually. We individually, when we come to Christ, we come with this, and we gain this sense of freedom. Wow, Jesus has saved me from sin and death. Jesus has saved me from the onus of suffocating under the burden of trying to live righteously. Now I don't have to worry about that. Now I'm free from that. Jesus has saved me through the power of his spirit from many things, the clutches of the enemy, the the power of temptations, these sorts of things that the spirit comes and gives us aid to. So we have this great grand experience over the course of our life with what Christian freedom means. Why have we been set free? It's not just for us. Jesus Christ has set us free. Even in Romans 15, he said he did this freely of his own will. Jesus of his own will bent over backwards, right? Put himself on the cross, shed his own blood and died for us so so that we might gain. I want to encourage you, the freedom that comes in Christ doesn't come simply to bless you. It comes so that you now have the freedom to obediently sacrifice before the Lord. One way to say it is, is in Christ we have this freedom. We're now free to do the right thing. We can now give to the Lord. We can now do things for the Lord. We can now be the, the man like Paul in verse 26 who says, you know what? For the sake of the body, I'll, I'll step aside. Or you know what? For the sake of the family, I don't need to win that argument. All the signs in my, in my gut tell me I have the right to be angry, I have the right to be hurt, I have the right to feel this way, but you know what? Because I'm free in Jesus and because of what he calls me, I'm going to eat that. I'm going to take it and I'm going to give it to him so that there's clear air between the two of us. So many relationships in this world, even among Christians, are two people who believe they are free and have rights, frustrated at each other because no one will bend. This is what freedom looks like. 
Paul, who's free not to go to Jerusalem, goes to Jerusalem. Paul, who's free not to do this thing, does this thing. Paul, who is constantly free, ends this chapter bound in chains. Because he's comfortable in the Lord. And his freedom is not for his own gain. I'm going to pray, and as I do, um, it's my hope that... um, whether Christian or non-Christian, you as a person, that you look back and just try to see in your own faith the places that you're claiming as rightfully yours or the things in your life that are yours, that you have a right to them. You feel you're justified in having them. And as I pray, I, 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 want, I hope those, pass, those images pass in front of your mind's eye. And I want you to set those images against what has been done for you all that has been done for you. I just want to ask, is that what your Christian freedom is for? For you to have a white-knuckle grip over something you feel you're entitled to? I mean, maybe, maybe there's someone here who just needs to, this is it, this is your expression of freedom. Let it go. Let's pray, Lord. We confess our starting point, and our starting point is in our own insecurity, Lord. We cling to rights and privileges as though they give us control. It's our environment, Lord. It's our American environment. Helps us mark our territory. It helps us have a sense of of our size, Lord. But that is not the nature of the freedom you give us. The freedom you give us is the freedom of rescue. The freedom of having been something but being made new. The freedom of not having to worry because because you are you're you've marked our territory you've brought us in you've saved us you've preserved us your father has adopted us and you've called us friend and so lord now here we are your people with freedom and i ask that in your spiritual way you would work in us to freely submit ourselves when we see that someone else is sensitive to something. That when as is, when is often as possible and as often as appropriate, that we, out of our comfort of being free and saved and blessed in your children, that as often as possible, we could be loose with the things we hold on to. Let them go. Lord, I even think of the Sermon on the Mount when you, someone wants you to walk one mile, walk with them too. If they take your cloak, give them your sandals. Forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. Seventy times seven, forgive. Lord, make us those kinds of free people who give freely, who bend freely, who step aside, who know that our our kingdom is not of this world and is marked out and is being preserved and prepared for us. And there's a great feast and we'll be brought to it. So there's nothing here now we have to cling so tightly to. And I pray, Lord, wisdom. 
wisdom as we do this, Lord, to not adopt a spirit of compromise as it relates to the truth as we try to do this, but to own your truth and just be calm and pleasant in the way we share it. I pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.